Thank you for that. My title for us this morning is Making the Most of the Time. Making the Most of the Time. And I want to introduce our message this morning by saying this. We are fans of the Lord of Rings trilogy, particularly Sarah and I. And so we've read the books, we've watched the movies, and there's this great scene in the Fellowship of the Ring. The Fellowship has been assembled to assist Frodo as he carries the Ring of Power to the top of Mount Doom to destroy it in the fires of Mordor. And this leads to an adventure that's full of both danger and discouragement. And at one point, as Frodo is sulking in the mines of Moria, which is in the movies, but it actually happens earlier in the books, he sits and he speaks to Gandalf, who is the wizard, if you know. And Frodo says, I wish the ring had never happened in my time. So do I, Gandalf said. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time given us. I want to talk to you today about making the most of the time given to us. Amen? We look at the 15th chapter of Deuteronomy, we read law, and, and to those of us who are on this side of the cross, when we read the law, sometimes it's like reading a foreign language, but in the reality of the matter, what we're actually reading is God teaching his people how to make the most of the time that he's given to them. I wonder if we've made the most of the time that God has given to us. There's a handful of principles passed down to us about the sabbatical timeline, the, sub, the Sabbath year as it's referred to. Four principles in particular that I think we can glean, one from each paragraph in the 15th chapter of Deuteronomy. So with a little bit of help with God's spirit and maybe a little guidance from Gandalf, we can make the best use of the time given to us. So let me share with you the first principle that I see here in Deuteronomy 15, and that is this. First, make the most of the time by organizing, excuse me, your finances. Make the most of the time by organizing your finances. <clears throat> I'm fighting something, so I'm sticking to the coffee close today. Look back at the text, if you would, please. It says, at the end of every how many years? Seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. And everybody goes, say no more. Say no more. I'm taking my mortgage to Bank of America immediately. I'm going to tell my... Financial consultant there. <laughs> Have you not read Deuteronomy 15? Listen, starting at the top, first of all, the people of God are told to make the most of the time by releasing debts. By releasing debts. And not just releasing them haphazardly, but according to the timeline of God, 
which is to say we are to make the most of our time by organizing our finances because every seven years, those who have lent are to release what they have lent from those who have borrowed. Now, a couple of things should be noted here. For example, there are options in regards to the interpretation of this principle. Is God saying to release the debt, period? That's one option. Or is God saying to release the pledge or the collateral, but not the debt itself, so that the collateral isn't hanging over the head of the borrower? That's another possible interpretation. The final option is that the sabbatical year provides a release from debt payment for that year, but not from the debt itself. You have to resume paying, in other words, after the sabbatical year. I think it's probably the first option. I think God is saying, after seven years, you release the debt. But there's some pretty fair uh, aspects of understanding in either of the three options. But I think that the first is probably the most reasonable. But having said that, if we were to land on the first of the three options, releasing the debt in the seventh year, I think there's a few things worthy of note. First, culturally speaking, the economy was largely agricultural. First of all, the culture or the economy was largely agricultural. So we're not talking about Bitcoin here. You know what I mean? This isn't a second mortgage on their house. This is in all likelihood, as one author writes, having to do with need. Debts were mostly charitable loans to needy persons, not commercial ones, end quote. So the idea here, friends, is that there's a simpler life-related transaction that's taking place here. So the release that's being taken care of is not something that has happened so that there could get, they could get another car and a boat and a pool in the back of the house, and now it's seven years, and they're like, I'm waiting for that seventh year to come. This is, not, this is not what we're talking about. Secondly, and presumably, the loan was manageable. This is not 2008 we're talking about. Where everybody's loan came due, and they were like, what in the world was I thinking? What was the bank thinking? What was our country thinking? No, this is not that. The loan was presumably manageable. The amount of the loan could be satisfied in that allotted time, as the scripture says, seven years. So it's unlikely that we're talking about releasing an exorbitant amount of money, at least not in most cases. It's also important to note that this loan had taken place between brothers, not foreigners. Now, the foreigners were obligated to fulfill the loan, but not the brothers. They weren't to exploit each other, in other words. In other places in the scriptures, it says, you shall not charge your brother interest. Instead, they were to be interested in each other's success and at the end of seven years, there was to be a forgiveness. That's what release means. There was to be forgiveness, a release of whatever had not already been settled in the time allotted. In other words, this isn't some kind of get-rich scheme. 
This sabbatical law was primarily a law that was put into place by God to protect the poor from exploitation from those who had. In the New Testament, we might see this principle played out in forgiveness. Jesus once said in Matthew chapter 6, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Or in Luke chapter 6, verse 37, Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Or in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's a great verse, Ephesians 4, 32, and it reminds us that our temperament, our attitude, and our overall disposition toward each other should be modeled after that which had been given to us by God in Christ. Now, this means that just as God has forgiven us, church, we ought to, what? Forgive. We are to be merciful, not merciless. We are to be forgiving, not unforgiving. To be an unforgiving Christian is to be a conflict in terms. So if we are to make the most of the time that God has given us, first of all, then we should be organized in our finances. Secondly, we are to make the most of our time by being generous. We are to make the most of our time by being generous. Look again at verse 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut up your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need. Now, I want you to rewind just a little bit to verse 4. But there will be how many poor among you? No poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that your Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. Verse 5, what's the first word of verse 5? If, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord, etc., etc., etc. In other words, is the word of God contradicting itself? The answer is resoundly no. What God is saying is, I will bless your land to such an extent that poverty will not be an issue if. But even in the context of this conversation, the context of this blessing, God says in verse 7, but if there are poor among you, which implies that there might not be faithfulness among the people. If they're unfaithful and poverty is a result of their faithlessness toward God and there are people who are impoverished, there's an aspect or a caveat of the law to take care of them as well. So just as the people of Israel were taught in the law to forgive the debt, of their brothers after seven years, so also there is taught in the law a concern for the poor. In other words, we are to make the most of the time by being generous. It says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart. 
or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for what he needs, whatever it may be. And I love what God says here. He says in verse 9, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say in the seventh year, the year of release is near. In other words, who, what does near mean? Uh, well, that's relative. The guy doesn't want to give the loan. You know what I mean? Some people say, well, maybe there was only a year away, but near for some people might be three years away. The, the, the truth of the matter is, is God is not addressing a time. God is addressing a heart. Their heart is one of stinginess. Their heart is one that lacks generosity. That's what God is talking about. Not that there's six months before the seventh year comes, but that this person doesn't want to lend anyway. So let's not get lost in a technicality here. He reminds them that they were once slaves in Egypt, and the Lord delivered them. In other words, church, this is part of godliness and righteousness. What is? Generosity. Generosity is a part of godliness and righteousness. Now, you might say, Joe, I want to be generous. And when I have more, I plan on being generous. Well, that's not how it works. You're generous with what you have. You're not potentially generous with what you potentially have. Did you get that? There are people who are more generous with the $100 that is in their bank account than rich people, some, who have $100,000 in their bank account. The truth of the matter is, generosity is not about what you have. It's about an attitude toward others. Psalm 37, verse 26, says that the righteous man is ever lending generously. Proverbs 14.21 says, Blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Ephesians 4.28 says, and get this, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, be uh, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You know, there's a, there are stages to this. There are stages to that. Okay, you've come to church, you've heard the gospel, you've become a believer in Jesus Christ, and in the process of your repentance and receiving forgiveness and the love of God in your life, you're learning that the way you used to live was wrong and the way God wants, to, wants you to live is right, but you're not sure how to go about that. He teaches us very plainly here. He says, let the thief no longer steal. Let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may share with anyone in need. You see, in Christianity, it's not enough that you don't do bad. You must do good. Generosity is part and parcel of who we are because God has generously and graciously given to us. And if God has generously and graciously given to us, then we must generously and graciously give to others. Now, how much you give is entirely up to you. That's why you gotta rewind to the first part and start there. We must make the most of time by being financially organized. Once we are financially organized, we can be generous. In a sense, it's something that ties both the Old and New Testaments together. In verse 11, it says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. In Mark chapter 14, verse 7, Jesus says, You will always have the poor with you. 
Now, to a degree, we always have people in need around us. It could be a family member. It could be a close friend or it could be a stranger. The truth of the matter is, living in one of the top five most expensive cities in the United States, we know what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck. We know what it's like to spend $5 on a gallon of milk. We know what it's like to spend $4 on a gallon of gas. We know what it's like to go through hard times, hours being cut back, our businesses being choked because of the economy and the things that are affecting others affect us and the things that affect us affect others. We've all been there. In many ways, we're still dealing with some of the repercussions of these decisions. There will always be poverty in our midst. And it's sad to say that some of you to whom I'm speaking today are the ones that are financially struggling. It's interesting to note that God in the New Testament speaks more about money than he does hell. It's not because hell is fake, but it's because there are practical aspects of our faith that should reveal themselves in our lives. The rich and the poor meet together, Proverbs 22 says, because the Lord is the maker of them all. Friends, what I want to challenge you with today by way of this second principle in Ephesians chapter 4 is it's not enough for you to claim the name of Christ and not be generous. If you claim the name of Christ, you must be generous. Now, how that unfolds in your life, I hope, includes your church. You should give generously to your church. We talked about this last week. If you come across someone who has need, whatever their need might be, you should have an attitude of generosity before you have an attitude of stinginess. Now, that doesn't mean that you give money out to anybody and everybody in all circumstances. You have to exercise some wisdom here. But I'm sure you've heard someone say it before, and I'll say it to you. To such an extent that you give things to people out of kindness and godly love, the rest of it is between them and God. If they misuse it, that's up to them. But if you continue to lend to people who have no idea what they're doing with money, well, now we might be talking about wisdom. Maybe that's not the wisest decision. But the truth of the matter is, in principle, what we're looking at today, if we're going to make the best use of the time that God has given us, number one, we must be financially organized. And number two, we must be generous. Thirdly, our next principle is this. If we're going to make the most of the time, then we must do so by honoring obligations. We must make the most of the time by honoring obligations. Look at your Bibles in Deuteronomy 15, verse 12. It says, If your brother, a Hebrew man or Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year you shall release him to go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. <clears throat> you shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall bless him. Anyway, 
The third principle is important. I think it's one of those aspects to which we can relate. We suddenly, or so we often, so often hear people say that God's word in the Old Testament is hard to understand. You read this, it seems pretty simple, doesn't it? In fact, it's so clear that it's almost offensive to us because we say we won't read the Old Testament because of its difficulty in understanding, but this is awfully clear, church. I think that this third principle is important because it has to deal with our treatment of those who work for us somehow. In this text, what's being implied is obviously indentured servitude. These are people who are working for someone else because they couldn't afford to satisfy a loan or a purchase. When someone isn't in a position to pay someone else what is owed, therefore they work off their debt. Two things are being assumed here. Number one, the employer will be kind and generous. And number two, the employee will work hard to satisfy what they pay. Those are both important. I'm going to say them again. Two things are being assumed here. Number one, the employer will be kind and generous to the employee. And number two, the employee will work hard to satisfy what they can't pay. Now, I'm going to pause here and drink coffee. Both things are required of us from God. We are required to be generous, but we are also required to work hard. We are required to be generous, but we are also required to work hard. This is such a pivotal principle in Christianity and the life of faith that Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 that if someone will not work, then they will not eat. If you have an able-bodied person who can work but refuses to work for whatever reason... We can meet their need for a particular period of time. But we're not going to allow them to live a life of no work. Biblically speaking, every able-bodied person should work. That's what is being said here. Not only that the person who is the employer should be generous and kind, but the assumption that the employee is working hard to pay off their debt. Unfortunately, there are a myriad of texts that have been taken very far out of context when it comes to paragraphs like this. They've taken the word slave or servant and they've twisted it out of context. Both in the Old Testament and the Roman periods had a very different idea of slavery than we did in early America. That's a sin and a blot on the history of our country. There are no two ways to look at it. It was wrong. It was wrong, and it was wrong. And what adds insult to injury is that some who use the name of Christ and the word of God, the Bible, to justify their slavery would use verses that seem to imply that they had the right to do it, but I don't remember reading any documents in the history of our country of slaves during chattel slavery being released for a sabbatical year. So it's funny, the double standard that we occupied in the early portions of our country as well. But I say all that to say this. We're not talking about the same thing here. 
Sometimes it can be very confusing when we look at the slavery we're familiar with as Americans and interpret the word of God by way of that familiarity, and that would be wrong. When we look at the indentured servitude or the slavery that existed in the Roman times, we're looking at a very different kind of slavery. In other words, we're not taking advantage of people here. Of course, we should be wise with how we make our money and how we spend our money. But God's perspective here is pretty straightforward. I've blessed you, so bless others. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? I've blessed you, so bless others. The reality of the matter is, at no point in time does the word of God say, if you want to make the most of the time that I have given you, then be poor. It also doesn't say that if you're going to make the most of the time that I have given you, then it can only happen if you're rich. The truth of the matter is most of us live somewhere there in the middle. And so does the author of Proverbs who says, do not let me have so little that I curse you or so much that I forget who you are. The reality of the matter is whatever God decides to give to us is his will and his providence But one thing is inescapable, and that is this. Whether we have $200 in our hand or $200,000 in our hand, God expects us to be responsible, and he expects us to work hard. Those principles are non-negotiable. Look at verses 14 and 15. If this indentured servant were to work off his debt with this employer up to the time of the sabbatical year, verses 14 and 15 say, you shall furnish him liberally out of your stock, out of your threshing floor, out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that your God redeemed you. And therefore, I command you this day. In other words, what I have done for you, do for others. To such an extent, in fact, that it might be a possibility that the slave, the indentured servant, doesn't want to leave. They've developed a relationship. In fact, it even says, if they love you, if they've developed a relationship with you and they want to carry on with you moving forward, pierce their ear and tie it to the door. That's kind of a weird thing. Let's just call it like, you know, you can give them a bracelet or something. We don't do this kind of stuff anymore. We don't see it this way. We see it in the book of Ruth, for example, and Boaz. They take off each other's sandal and shake a sandal. You go, that's weird. But that's a cultural thing. The principle we can still understand, and that is this. There should be a demonstration or a rite of passage, a ceremony, if you will, that says that time has come to an end and a new time has begun. Even in that instance, God is saying, don't take advantage of this person. I wonder if we're working as hard as we ought to. And I wonder if we're treating the people who work with us or under us with the love, respect, and generosity that God expects us to. This principle applies at home as well. Sometimes we have chores that we hand down to our kids And we give them this much instruction or information, but we give them a lot of attitude if they don't do it right. They won't learn if we don't what? Teach them. 
Now, if you want to give your children money for taking out the trash or keeping their room clean, that's entirely up to you. Uh, In our house, most of the chores are done by our kids because they are part of our family, not because we owe them anything. Amen? Now, that's not to say we make their life as hard as possible. Our kids have it made, like your kids do. But the reality of the matter is we have very high expectations of our children. When they get a job, whatever that job might be, their employer is going to have expectations of them too. If you don't have expectations of your kids now, you're going to make them terrible employees in the future. You are setting up a very bad relationship between them and their future employer if you don't start teaching them how to get things done well and in a timely fashion. I don't care how you do it, but I need it done by 4 o'clock. Whatever, whatever the chore might be, whatever the task might be, start giving your kids responsibility, accountability, with a reminder that the reward is dinner, a bed, a shower, a roof, and a family system. Amen? Amen. If we're going to make the most of our time, then we have to honor obligations. Fourthly and finally, this is in verses 19 and following, we are to make the most of the time by prioritizing God. Now, I won't mention who said this point should have been first, but the last name rhymes with Bellens. <laughs> and I said, I didn't make this order. Moses made this order. And, 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 and what I want to bring to your attention, guys, is this. If you have all three principles, but you missed the fourth, it doesn't matter. The climax is here. The zenith of the argument is here at the end. Once we're financially organized and generous and honoring our obligations that we have with different people, we have to remember that in all things, who comes first? God comes first. If we do all those things well, and we get to the end of our life, and we're facing eternity, and we don't know the Lord, we're not prioritizing our relationship with Jesus, then that other stuff is irrelevant. Doesn't matter how successful we are in the physical aspects of this life if in the spiritual aspects we have failed. Look at verse 19, if you would. All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. In other words, everything that is the best, everything that is the first, everything that is the most important, to whom do we give it? We always give it to God. We don't give God leftovers. We don't give God blemishes. We don't give him our second best. We don't give him whatever's left over after we've exhausted ourselves with this, that, or the other. Job, chore, hobby, task, whatever. We always give God our greatest effort and our greatest energy. Regardless of what we walk away with today, I hope that you will walk away with this because no other principle matters if you don't grasp this one. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you prioritize your time? 
Or do you just allow your day to unfold however it does and you respond sort of reactively instead of actively? Do you prioritize your money? Do you just spend it until you're out and you're like, okay, we're out again? Or do you say, okay, I've got this money. Here is my plan for this money. This plan, verse 19, honors God. I'm going I'm to give to my church. I'm going to pay these bills. I'm going to put some in savings. And here's my play money. Are you managing your money that way? Prioritizing. Are you prioritizing your marriage? When you sit down on your calendar and look at what you have spent today, this week, this month, this year with your spouse, are the symptoms in your marriage evidence of your failure to prioritize your husband or your wife? I don't know what it is. We just, we just don't get along that well. I can tell you why. I don't know what it is. We used to be so much more intimate. Now the intimacy is like hit or miss. We're never intimate anymore. I can tell you why. The reality of the matter is, if you don't make these things a priority and give the most of your energy to God by spending it on the things that he has given to you, there will be symptoms everywhere in your life that testify to this fact. You have failed to put God first. Do you prioritize your family? And this is the crazy part. You save, right? You save, you plan, you prioritize so that you can give your first and your best to God. In a, in a myriad of ways, we've looked at it through Deuteronomy 15 and three or four different ways, but, but the reality of the matter is, is I think you're an intelligent enough church to follow my, my flow of thought here. We're taking everything, no matter what it might be, and we're giving our best to God in this thing. But what's amazing is God turns around and gives it right back to us. When we sacrifice to God, God says, eat it all, but don't eat the blood. Which was not only a testament to the fact that life was in the blood, and he was teaching his people something, but I think in an underlying way, God was protecting his people in ancient times from diseases and other issues. Friends, let me turn a corner and let me say this. God is gracious. God is giving. God is just. And God richly rains down upon his children kindness and blessings that we could never imagine or calculate. And, and we sometimes, as children do, even our own children, hoard the things that we receive from his hand as if we're never going to receive another thing and we're stingy with the blessings we don't share. I want to do something we don't often do, but I, I, want, to, I want you to chase down a few verses with me today. So grab your Bibles. <clears throat> if you're cheating and using an app, that's okay too. <laughs> and I'm going to share with you a wonderful verse uh, to begin with in the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 103. 
The book itself consists of 150. So we say the book of Psalms. But when we are referring to one in particular, we say Psalm. Psalm. So please don't make that mistake. It's a pet peeve of mine. It's not Psalms 103. It's Psalm 103. Good? Okay. Uh, More pet peeves to come. So Psalm 103... Verses 1 and 2, you can read it with your eyes as I read aloud. Bless the Lord, O my soul. By the way, when you see bless the Lord, you don't say bless the Lord, O my soul. You say bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. This guy's happy. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits. We can't outgive God. I want to know. I, I'm curious. I don't, this is rhetorical, but I want, I want you to hear me ask the question because I want you to wrestle with this in your own life. When was the last time you didn't complain and instead said, thank you, God. Thank you for what you've done, who you are. Thank you for the promises that I have in my life. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. When's the last time you did that? Not, oh, I'm going to have enough money for this, or oh, this didn't work out the way I wanted to, or, or I'm never going to get this project done in time, or, or I have a plan for a friend or a family or a marriage. It's not unfolding the way that I want to. You name it. You name it. We're all dealing with a handful of things at all times. And do we stop in the midst of all those troubles and say, I don't care about the troubles. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities and heals all your diseases. Do you bless the Lord? That's one of the ways that we prioritize God. Jump to the New Testament, if you would, please. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse eight. I mentioned this. Second <clears throat> Corinthians chapter nine, verse eight. God is able. I mean, that's good enough, right? I mean, that's we could stop there and be like, hallelujah. But it keeps going. Listen. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I think what Paul is trying to tell the church at Corinth is you can be generous and put God first and know you'll never have a need because God owns all of it all the time and he's got all sufficiency to make your work and your investment while you prioritize him flourish. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3. Just turn a couple books from 2 Corinthians to Galatians 
to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm just going to read this little paragraph here because it's a beautiful paragraph, but it's one long sentence in the Greek, and it is a little challenging. So I'm going to read it so that we get the picture because I think it's pretty incredible what Paul says. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according, get this, according to the riches of his glory. What a great phrase. God is not broke in the department of glory. According to the riches of his glory, get this, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That reads like a prayer prayed by somebody who has seen God do something in his life. Amen? I've said this before, and I'll say it again, church. When we're children, we are taught to pray, now I lay me down to sleep. But when you become an adult, that prayer won't make it for you. If you're going to have an adult faith, you're going to need adult prayers. And that is part of the maturity of our faith. And Paul says here, I hope that you can comprehend the breadth and length and depth of his love, which surpasses knowledge. Incredible. Last one, Philippians chapter 4. It's one book over. Philippians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 14. It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving. He's talking about money here. Except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received how much of the payment? Full payment and more. 
I am how supplied? Well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And by the way, so that we don't forget, here's what I want you to get, verse 19, so that we don't forget after this incredible, obviously they're giving Paul a very significant financial gift to help his ministry, to bless him and to keep him going. Verse 19 says, don't forget that my God will supply every need of yours according to his what? Riches in glory. God is not broke. God is not wondering if he has enough in one account that he can let it supply another account. God is rich in glory. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And here it is, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Church, the reason I'm bringing this to your attention is because I want you to know something. As much as we try to get financially organized, be generous, honor those who have obligations with us, and put God first, we could never outdo God. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, he blesses us. He blesses us richly, he blesses us completely, and he blesses us from the beginning to the end. Because that's his, that's his personhood, that's who he is. Our God is a blesser. And if we learn anything from the sabbatical year taught in Deuteronomy 15, as a group of people who no longer live in the same culture and system that the law was given to, it's this. We need to make the most of the time that has been given to us. How can you and I make the most of the time that has been given to us? For some of you, it might be financial responsibility. Maybe you need to start taking ownership of your finances. For some of you, maybe you need to start practicing generosity better. For some of you, maybe you need to start being honoring, honorable, excuse me, with your obligations to others and to those that God has placed in your life. Finally, to all of us, may we remember that no priority is more important than our God. 